This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back to a brand new season of Technically Human. To kick off the season, I'm sitting down with film director Jake Wachtel, whose debut movie, Carmelink, is the first science fiction film set and made in Cambodia. Jake Wachtel grew up in California and studied film and neuroscience at Stanford University. In 2015, he moved to Cambodia to teach filmmaking to children through Filmmakers Without Borders. His short film, The Foreigner Here, premiered at the Cambodian International Film Festival alongside a new wave of Cambodian directors. His documentary work has been featured on nytimes.com, Wired, NPR, and MSNBC. Carmelink is his debut feature. Carmelink debuted at the Venice Film Festival in 2021 to rave reviews. It also premiered at the Hawaii Film Festival, the Austin Film Festival, the Denver Film Festival, and the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival, where it won the award for Best Narrative Feature. Variety called it a magical spiritual mystery tour that takes viewers on a fascinating and frequently wondrous expedition to a place where science and metaphysics intersect. And now, here's my conversation with Jake. Hi, Jake. Hi. So, Jake, before we get into the film itself, I wanted to start off by mentioning that the film Carmelink is the first science fiction film ever to be set in Cambodia. So maybe we could talk a little bit about how those two things came together for you. Why for you is Cambodia a space for imagining in the context of science fiction? Why set a science fiction film in Cambodia? Well... I think the easiest way for me to answer that or way to get into that is that I was living in Cambodia teaching filmmaking and I I spent a year living there getting to know this community really well, really falling in love with with my students and the the community and thinking a lot about what was going on in their community. And then I'm also a huge science fiction fan. I've been really into sci-fi since I was a little kid. And so the idea for the story bubbled up sort of born of these these two things happen you know in my life simultaneously but it's yeah as you said maybe not the most intuitive thing or and it hasn't been done before to set a, a sci-fi movie in cambodia and really there haven't been a ton of sci-fi movies made in the global south generally and that was something that i started looking into as, as this idea sort of organically arose in my mind and thinking about that there's traditionally a kind of elitism or Eurocentrism to like the, the sci-fi stories get told thinking about like, oh, this the sci-fi stories take place at, at, in Silicon Valley, the cutting edge. So people think that Cambodia is maybe not a, not a place where you would see a sci-fi story. However, my experience in Cambodia was one of feeling super rapid rates of technological change. I, I think partly owing to the fact that you know, they they are a more traditional society that in the recent past has had, you know, less technology. And so as as there's the proliferation, the influx of of technology that's kind of pervasive globally right now. You think about like smartphones and the internet coming in pretty recently everywhere. When it when it comes into a place like Cambodia, it, it feels like it's like a faster acceleration or a bigger rupture from the recent past. The the rate of change feels stronger. 
And the technology is there. I mean, Cambodia is speeding headlong into the future. The general populace is really embracing, you know, a lot of change. And so I think that that, that idea was interesting of how it feels like Cambodia is heading into the future faster than Silicon Valley, where I come from, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. I, I teach a lot of science fiction from the global south in my ethics and technology course. Of course, famously, you know, District 6, a science fiction movie set in South Africa, in many ways a parable for the apartheid era, I think was monumentally significant when it arrived in the United States. And then I think of authors like Amitav Ghosh, uh, Calcutta Chromosome, famously, I think is one of the great pieces of Indian science fiction. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, there's there's for sure there's a I think there's a lot of literature out there, but it's more like on the, the cinematic landscape, there's a lot less. And like District 9 was it was a huge deal because it felt like it was the first one to many people. People like had really hadn't seen that before. And then what about Cambodia? Does Cambodia, I know Cambodia doesn't have a science fiction tradition in film. Is there a science fiction tradition in literature? Is there a science fiction readership in the Cambodian audience? Um that's interesting. I don't I don't know about readership and I also don't purport to be an expert on like Cambodian media and the in the history of of like what's been around in Cambodia. What what I I don't I don't know of any tradition of of sci-fi per se in Cambodia, although there's a very the you know the young generation is hungry for stories and they're consuming all kinds of global media from from there's a lot of you know Hollywood stuff that gets it's very popular in Cambodia, but also from Korea and Japan and, and neighboring countries. In Cambodia itself, for sure, there's a, a very rich, I would say almost like fantasy storytelling tradition where you have like ogres and forest monks with magical powers and, and stuff that really seems akin to like uh, Lord of the Rings and a lot of like our mythic traditions. And I think there's often some of the stuff that we think of canonically as sci-fi, like Star Wars is actually like a fantasy story. And so in, in this way, maybe you could make the argument that there is, you know, something that we, that maybe we think about as sci-fi or, or this sort of imaginative kind of storytelling that's very much a part of the Cambodian storytelling tradition. Yeah, forget who I'm quoting when I say this, but there's a really, I think, impactful quote that an undergraduate last year reminded me of that any really great technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I thought about that. I mean, that, that seems like a really neat bridge between the kind of narrative tradition of magic and kind of like folk tale that you're talking about and kind of more fantasy based narrative and storytelling in Cambodia and the kind of, you know, magical storytelling that we do in places like Silicon Valley, where the magic is embodied in a piece of technology. Yeah, I think that there's like a spectrum of what of what we think about as sci-fi. I, I really love the author Ted Chang, who writes short stories. You wrote the short story that the, the movie Arrival is based on. He has, a, he has a really cool talk about the difference between fantasy and sci-fi and where do we draw that line. And he, he has a pretty clear delineation. And I find for myself, the stories that I'm interested in fall more on the kind of like hard science or grounded sci-fi that, that feel more plausible rather than the Star Wars kind of stories. Well, I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier, which is that, you know, we knew each other in the context of both growing up in California, in Silicon Valley. You went to classes in the same high school as I did. My guess is that if you read sci-fi, you read it by the same authors that I did, which is to say a lot of Western authors. Of course, the East has its own sci-fi tradition. I'm thinking notably, of course, of China's uh, Qi Qin Lu, also of 
uh, Chifan Chen and Japan's Shunro Oshikawa. And now, now I'm wondering, are there differences between how East Asian writers and filmmakers think about sci-fi and East Asian sci-fi as a genre, on the one hand, and the tradition of Western sci-fi? Yeah, I, I definitely would need to preface whatever I'm about to say with like, I, I, I do not feel like an expert at all on neither East Asian sci-fi or like what constitutes the ethos of Western sci-fi enough to really delineate it. But that question makes me think of a conversation that I was having recently. Carmelink had its Asian premiere at the Singapore International Film Festival. And so they have a lot of films from Southeast Asian filmmakers are playing there. And there's an interesting conversation happening between a filmmaker from Indonesia and, and one from Singapore about like what constitutes Southeast Asian cinema. And if you can even say that something that there is something that constitutes Southeast Asian cinema, and there's talking about like having a different relationship to time. in some of these stories that maybe the stories play out more slowly, because there's something about the culture. And then but then there's the counter argument that like, really, you know, each country has its own such a specific point of view that it's, it's, it's hard to like draw some synthesis from all of them, or, or I guess the, what the filmmaker is saying is like, I'm just here to make the film. And like, you know, I'll let the, <laughs> the academics or whatever it is, figure out like what it is that, that comes up between them. And I think that I set out to make something that felt like a Cambodian sci-fi because I know Cambodia. I, I don't know very much about other cultures in this part of the world outside of Cambodia, but I felt like over the years that I've spent here, I've gotten to know Cambodia pretty well. But I do think that there's maybe more that a Cambodian sci-fi might have in common. Again, looking at looking at stories taking place in the global south rather than a Cambodian sci-fi alongside like a Korean sci-fi. And I, and I think that that that's owing to some function that sci-fi serves, which is to deal with change in society. So Oshikawa was, he was writing around the same time as Jules Verne back in like the late 1800s. And, you know, it seems to me like, you know, there's, there's this moment when both in America and Japan, there's like this rapid industrialization and, and the sci-fi maybe is born out of this as a way to, to deal with this. And so, yeah, for me, I think that the Cambodian sci-fi story, I, I that I was interested in telling, which is like very related to development and technological progress is sort of speaking to what's what's alive in that sphere in Cambodia right now. How do you think about science fiction? And I'm really interested in thinking about this question, you know, both uh, in the context of the influences that you had growing up around science fiction, but now also in the context of Cambodia, how perhaps you are rethinking that genre or that tradition of science fiction, given the way that you're thinking about it in Cambodia. What do you see as the relationship between science fiction as a genre and its relationship to culture, to history, to the past, and to thinking about the future? I love science fiction for its potential to, you know, to explore all, all those relationships that you just named. I think that this story, I mean, specifically with Carmelink, I, I think that a sort of unifying theme for me was, was thinking about the process of development. And we have, you know, we have technological development, which is something that you like see in sci-fi and something that happens in, in the film. There's like big leaps forward in augmented reality and mapping of the brain and artificial consciousness in the film. I come from a background of making short films for nonprofits and NGOs work, working in, in the sphere of development. And I've been really interested in, in the idea. I've, I have air quotes around <laughs> development right now. And like, what does that mean? You know, and, and the ways that, that this is a complicated process and technology, but development more, more generally, you know, there's lots of examples 
that I think inspired me that are outside the realm of technology, but, but seeing how, seeing how a culture changes, seeing how, a the mentality of a place is changing as the processes of development unfold and thinking about that change and thinking about what's lost and what's gained. That, that for me is really fertile territory to tell a sci-fi story, to, to talk about these things. Can you give us a case of one of the complexities that you saw dealing with the context of t- development about tech or about development that led you to understand that this was, you know, a complexity and not just kind of like technological progress or development as a progressive value, but also one that was deeply maybe vexed or frictionful in the context of Cambodia? Well, yeah, so I'll give you sort of one of each, one outside the realm of tech and then one in. So outside the realm of tech, there used to be a big lake in the center of Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, called Bangkok Lake. 4,000 families lived on the lake, and it was a, it was a beautiful lake. And basically, the government sold the land to private developers, and they, they filled the lake in with sand. And now they're building shopping malls and luxury developments where the lake was. And they forcibly relocated all of the families to these relocation communities outside of town where they kind of bought them off, but for less money than their land was worth, this kind of thing. So they were like clear victims of development or super disruptive to the lives of these people. And I, when I first moved to Cambodia, I lived next to where the lake used to be, which was at that point, just a bunch of sand dunes. And I used to go sit in the sand and like, think about the way that things were going. And, and it's, it's horrifying on one hand. You think about the destruction of nature and you know the ramifications of that are like far reaching. There's a lot more flooding in the area now because they don't have the, the water catchment that the lake used to be during the monsoon season and the way that these lives were disrupted. And I think there's a lot of finger wagging, especially from outsiders seeing a process like this happen. And I think that there's the, the complexity is like, you know, they're building the city center now and it's like... It's a nice place for middle-class Cambodians to hang out and like be peaceful and have a good time. And it feels like there's a bit more forethought to city planning than some of the other more like chaotic spaces in the city. And I think about how, yeah, how easy it is to kind of poo-poo this, this development the, of the lake getting filled in with sand and, and how it is rather dystopian. But at the same time, it's like, it's going to be like a nice place in the city. And really that same process of some form of land reclamation, what have you, is, has been repeated all over the world. It certainly happened where, you know, where we grew up in Silicon Valley, you go back 200 years and it was nature, it was forest. And, and we just are so far removed in time from that process that we don't see it happening, that we don't see that and we don't see the inequities that are sort of inherent in that process. So we just get to, you know, enjoy the, the fruits of that. And so that was something think, that I was thinking about a lot. Another example that's kind of owe my thinking to this to my co-writer, Chris Larson, who's an American who's been living in Laos for a long time, is just thinking about the way that like social media has a different impact in Cambodia than it does in America, specifically because the way that the, the form is designed is you create a personal profile where you think about yourself in a very individualistic way, in a very atomized way. And it's all about, it's thinking of yourself as an individual. Now, in America, which has a very individualistic culture that has a very different resonance than in Cambodia, where they're coming from a much more like community-oriented perspective. And so maybe the people who are like designing Facebook out in Palo Alto and in Menlo Park are like in those early days, they're not thinking this thing that then becomes so pervasive and is like getting into our brains and changing the way that we think. It's it's doing that in a really 
in a profoundly different way when a Cambodian kid signs up for their like personal profile and starts to think of themselves and, and gives them a way to to kind of be outside of the sphere of influence of their family, of their community in, in a new way. And it, it creates a pr- profound rupture in the culture, which again is complex. I'm not saying that that's just a terrible thing. I mean, I know I have a lot of friends who like are experiencing a sort of freedom in their lives, Cambodian friends here, because of that technology that in ways that I think is positive. But it's for sure a big change, and it's a change in ways that are maybe subtle and, and not always taken into account by the people who are designing these technologies. Yeah, maybe it's time to start talking a little bit about the, the film itself, because the idea of the individual and the ways in which Cambodian society thinks of the individual as much more uh, connected on a kind of uh, interpersonal way than we do in the West and relocation are, are both plot points in the film. So without giving too much of the film away, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Carmelink and about the plot of the movie. Sure. Karma Link is about a boy named Lang Hang, who's living in Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, and sometime in the, in the near future. And he has dreams of his past lives. And over and over again, he's having these dreams specifically centering around a gold statue. And so he and his friends are convinced that the meaning of these dreams is that he's supposed to find this statue. And their community is being faced with a, uh, there's a development project in their community and and, and they're being threatened with uh, relocation. And so they kind of want to find this statue. Maybe they think it can save the, they can save their community and they won't have to move away. And there's a, a girl in the neighborhood who's a sort of detective who they convinced to help them try to unravel this mystery of where the statue is and how to find it. And, and so in that way, it's got a little bit of a Cambodian Goonies vibe, kids trying to find a treasure to save their homes. There's also one of the things that the detective Sreliak uncovers is that there's a tie to a, a genius neuroscientist who Sreliak, the detective, uncovers a tie, a link to a genius neuroscientist who is digitizing his own consciousness in an effort to try to find a shortcut to enlightenment. That's the basic setup of the movie. And of course, you know, the film is pivoted around the Buddhist concept of karma. So what is karma? How does karma operate in the film? And how do you think about the relationship between this philosophical concept of karma and the possibilities of science fiction? Yeah, so karma simply is is like you reap what you sow. You do good and good comes back or vice versa. But in the concept of, or in the context of reincarnation, you, you do good things in this life and it gives you the opportunity to, to be reincarnated in a form that is closer to reaching enlightenment. You might come back as, as someone who's like just that much more ready to, to walk the path to enlightenment. And the concept of, of karma also I think is is really tied to this idea that we are all connected. And in in Cambodia in this in this communal culture thinking about the repercussions of your of your actions on the larger community. Yeah, that's a really important part of this concept. And, you, you know, as you're also as you move from one life to the next and you think about how the relationships that you form are not confined to this life which I think is really fascinating. It's like stretching back the way that we're interconnected extends far beyond what we know. You see someone on the street 
and maybe you guys have met in a past life. And so there's there's just like a much deeper web of interconnection that undergirds a society where where this belief system is in place. And I think where that intersects with with the science fiction ideas that I'm interested in exploring is so the the Cambodian name of the film is actually in the next life and Giakrawi. And and it's thinking about how we're like continually birthing new worlds out of our world. We're like reincarnating our world all the time and what's coming down the pike, what where we're going in the future is really dependent on the way that we make decisions now. I think that these conversations around ethics and technology and human human centered technology are so important because maybe the technology has like lots of potential and it's going to bring us into a new world. But in the same way that those families were moved off of the lake, and you think about at what cost are we bringing about this new world? That's really the the question that I'm interested in in asking. And I'm so fascinated by this because I think what's at stake in so much science fiction is the way that science fiction uses a philosophical concept like karma in the ways that you've just talked about it in thinking about how the relationships and the things that we do in this life have afterlives that perpetuate themselves in the future. And the way that, of course, we think of ourselves in this fiction of the individual self, but we're always connected to others beyond us, whether those connections are those of reincarnation or the fact that I epigenetically and certainly genetically carry on lives from the past in ways that are embodied uh, for me and memories of the past that are passed down to me become part of how I understand myself as well. And in the context of science fiction, the way that it makes a kind of philosophical concept real is by giving us a technology or a tool that can, in a sense, materialize or manifest that concept or that philosophical reality in, in an actual form. So in the context of karma, the idea of past and future lives, that we are reincarnated from a past life and born into our present life, inhabiting in many ways inheriting that past, is the concept of karma proposes because something becomes something that the technological devices in the film can kind of trade on and manipulate. So how do you think about karma as a philosophical concept and on the other hand the karma links in the technology that your science fiction imagines as a materialized and technological creation that in many ways is aligned with and demonstrates in in a kind of scientific way the reality of this philosophical concept yeah i love the capacity for science fiction to like literalize and concretize more abstract ideas to help illuminate our relationship to those ideas so we have this character Dr. Vatanak Sovan in the movie, who he's a he's a Cambodian refugee who has grown up in America, and he remembers his past lives. But growing up in America, because he can remembers his past lives, he's very interested in the brain, and and he has access to like get really into neuroscience that maybe if he was growing up in the countryside in Cambodia he wouldn't have. And so this influences his thinking and. And he starts to think that maybe there's a way to use technology to categorize his past lives and abstract patterns from them. And thinking about the story of the night the Buddha attained enlightenment, the, the Buddha could see all of his past lives with perfect clarity. That was part of this journey that led him to enlightenment. In the same way, Vatanak is, he's trying to use technology to abstract some sort of algorithm from his past life memories, a, a kind of enlightenment algorithm. And 
I'm interested in this sort of more for its like literal function. I think it's kind of fun to to think about, but also just the, just the uh, the larger idea that that we can use technology to find a shortcut to enlightenment. And we have many different conceptions of of what enlightenment is, but you know, there's always this idea underlying. We spoke about this a bit before that we build technologies to build a, a better world and. So yeah, being able to tell the story of this scientist who is thinking that he can he can use these technologies to manipulate the process of of reaching enlightenment for me seemed like an interesting way to, to talk about the techno utopists that I'm surrounded by when I go back to Silicon Valley, you know, and, and their like sometimes monomaniacal belief that that like the projects that they're working on are going to bring about some some form of enlightenment to humans. Yeah, it's a specifically, I think, Silicon Valley idea that technology can't just be a technological innovation that's going to make somebody money. It also has to be, you know, transformative or changing the world or making the world a better place. Of course, many times we see when the technologies become large enough, when they get scaled beyond Silicon Valley, when they get exported elsewhere, that oftentimes these ideas are what are considered to be good world-changing ideas actually have a lot of unintended and sometimes willfully ignored consequences that end up deeply harmful. That pattern is deeply, I think, Silicon Valley, but it's also a pattern that we see inhabiting science fiction in every single kind of age, in every single iteration of science fiction. I think, for example, of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, this idea of you know the enchantment with human creation and then the disenchantment with human creation. But we could go even further back. We could think about Icarus, right? the enchantment with human creation, human technology, and then the disenchantment, you know, of technology as well. And as you were talking about Carmelink, you know, one of, I think the obvious metaphors is this character who goes back to Silicon Valley with this brilliant idea about connecting himself to, uh, you might say, other worlds. In the back of my mind, I was listening to that and I was thinking, oh, well, that's just another iteration of Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, idea of connecting the world, making the world a better place, which has been catastrophic, particularly in spaces in the East. So I guess to point this into a question here, you know, uh, this is a utopian vision built by this character that pretty swiftly heads into uh, dystopia. How do you think about the tendency of science fiction narratives to build in that constant enchantment and disenchantment? And how does that, what does that tell us about our vision of technology and perhaps some of the cautions that we might want to be more aware of as we create? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about dystopia and, and utopia and wondering about the correlation between the cultures and societies and the societal moments that produce certain kinds of stories. I think that you know, for me, part of the story was a way to talk about things that I was observing in Cambodia, but also on a very personal level to process a deep sense of alienation that I feel as we traverse the path of becoming more digitally connected. And there's a lot of myself and boy who goes through this like increasing alienation as he uncovers more of the truth of like what's been happening to his brain um, as a part of the experiment. But then there's also like a Vatanak in me. Vatanak is the the science, the neuroscientist of like being really excited about the the promise and potential of technology. And so I 
don't consider myself a Luddite or like anti-technology. And, and part of, I think, being able to tell a story like this is, is to recognize where that maybe naive or unfounded excitement can come into play. And to, I mean, it, clearly you can see from the way that society is going. We continue to need these cautionary tales because it's it continually feels like things are out of control. And so like whatever it is as a society and you know, maybe this is part of the role of, of artists is to is to try to help us keep in check some of these wild impulses to pursue technological utopia without being very thoughtful about it and without really thinking of like, how is this going to affect society at large? The particular technology in Karmalink is this neural connective technology that really, in in a sense, you know, connects past lives to present and future lives in in a chain, very much in line with that idea of karma. And what's fascinating about that, what's philosophical about that, is that this is a deeply, I think, true thing, and that the technology in Karmalink makes visible the fact that in every reincarnation of our life, we can call it reincarnation, we can just call it, you know, passing down memories from generation to generation, the technology makes visible that we do this all the time, that the memories of the past absolutely live and compose themselves in the memories of the present. The way that we remember things, the stories that we tell about the past, the things that have happened in the past are inevitably passed down to future generations. They, in a sense, are linked to our minds. They enter into our minds from the stories, from the connections to the past. And so in that sense, even without either the idea of karma as a kind of philosophical reality or the technology of karma links as a technical and material reality, we always kind of do that work of embodying the past or rather the past takes up residence in our minds and our bodies through those things, inherited memories, narratives, even generational and intergenerational trauma. Is the technology in a film then like a proxy or a cipher for, for this? Or does the technology allow for something fundamentally new. One of the things I love about this process of making the story and exploring this space is you you put the film out there and then it's and then it becomes open for interpretation. And like hearing hearing that question, I'm like, hell yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it's about. But at the same time, I'm like, maybe that wasn't completely the. I, I think that that's like a that's like a suggested meaning by the film. But I think in some sense, what is maybe different than a, than like the literalization of inheriting memories or carrying that with you in the technology is that the technology in the film is a, it's a pretty invasive process and yeah i mean i'm kind of thinking of, i'm thinking this through in real time which is cool because it, it it means that there's like there's always layers of meaning in the stories that we tell that that can resonate differently with different audiences for me Again, without getting too much into spoiler territory, because I hope everyone listening will like get a chance to watch the movie at some point and, and experience it fresh. But the this system of passing on memories, potentially there's a way that it can be done that, that feels like organic and somehow fulfilling. But I think that the way that it goes down in the movie is invasive and it's alienating our lead character from his sense of self. And to me, that's somehow more... Like it's the fact that it's mediated by technology rather than happening in the organic way is kind of the issue at hand. It's like the way that social media, you know, quote, facilitates social interaction, but it's it's a, it's of a totally different form than when we, we sit, you know, with our family and have dinner. 
like having that contrast in in the movie of these different kinds of connection these different kinds of networks you know there's there's like the organic networks and then there's the ones that are created artificially and wanting to somehow point to the problems of that artificiality I mean, as I'm listening to you say that, I, I'm thinking that, gosh, intergenerational trauma is pretty invasive True. In, in some senses, inorganic as well. And we can't talk about intergenerational trauma. We can't talk about passed on memory in the context of a film set in Cambodia without talking about the memories that have been passed down from previous generations to the present generation in Cambodian history, including a genocide in the 1970s orchestrated by Pol Pot and largely related to an American-driven conflict in the region in Vietnam, the U.S. bombings of Cambodia in the context of that conflict. And then, of course, there's the reality of that past for Cambodia in ways that are incredibly invasive and unwanted, both the reality of its past, the history of the country, which is literally alive in the present in the form of landmines. And just to give you a couple of uh, figures here, as many as four to six million mines are buried across the country and were buried across the country during the conflict. Those mines are still active. They are hidden. Nobody knows where they are, and they are extremely dangerous. One third of the victims are like the main character in your film, children. So truly, the past is an invasive landmine for the Cambodian present generation and for its future. So how do we think about this idea of karma and the technology of karma linking and this idea of science fiction in the context of technological products, minds, which are, of course, technological products, as haunting reminders of the past living in the present, ready to be dangerously, invasively reawoken in any moment, anywhere in the Cambodian landscape? Yeah, I, I think that there's different ways that memories get passed down. And as you rightfully elucidate, there is this incredible society-wide trauma that happened recently enough that like a lot of the society has lived through it. And the younger generation who didn't live through it, all of their parents lived through it, you know, it's and so they and, and they carry it and they're carrying it in some form forward. And on the other hand, I think that there's talk in the society and, and kind of a danger of the new generation losing uh, perspective or, or losing the memory of an, an understanding of what their elders went through. It's sort of like the trauma gets inherited almost on an unconscious level. And, and the reason why that's problematic is that maybe there's not enough happening on the conscious level. And again, I, I start to feel like I'm get, I'm wading into waters that I that I like don't know enough about to to talk about the psychology of the Cambodian people. I, I just know you know sort of the, from conversations that I've had with with my friends and stuff like that. But for sure, there is a need to process the past in a healthy way. I don't know exactly what that is, but you know, in in the film, on one hand, there's technology being employed to sort of without consent, jam memories into the minds of characters. But on the other hand, that, that same invention is gets used to, there, you know, there's, there's this other doctor in the film who's a, who helps Vatanak out with her invention, which in the context of the film, we see her using it to help grandmas to treat their Alzheimer's, to treat their memory issues. And it, it's sort of the same constellation of technologies that allow this this like invasive thing on one hand and on the other hand, something that can be helpful in holding on to 
memories and, and helping, you know, we see grandma telling stories to the kids as the technology is helping her remember more clearly her past. And this is another thing that I think is really important. And it's another way I think that, you know, the reality is that the technology is going to be used in, in both ways and the memory itself can function in both ways. It's complicated. One of the complications, I think, is that the character that you mentioned earlier, Dr. Vatanak Sovan, who is, just to remind the audience, a central character in the film, who is a scientist, Cambodian refugee, we learn, who has emigrated to the United States after surviving a bombing of his village, Krong Duan Kaev, in what I assume to be the context of the American involvement in conflict in Cambodia. We learn that he has left Cambodia as a refugee and has become extremely successful at the prestigious Stanford University in California, working on memory in neuroscience in a way that has been inspired by his life, presumably, most specifically, his life in the context of a deeply technological form of destruction in the context of American involvement in Cambodia. He ends up being a bit of a villain. Uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I do think it is notable that Western medicine and Western technological innovation make a significant impact in the life of Cambodians represented in the film in a way that ultimately seems to cause Cambodian characters in the film quite a bit of pain and harm. So how does the film position Western technological production and science in the Cambodian context? How do you think about this character's role in developing an incredible technological capacity, which as you just pointed out, is being used in a very helpful way to treat Alzheimer's on the one hand, which has gained this character a lot of prestige in the West, and then leveraging that use in Cambodia in ways that are oftentimes seem, as you pointed out, non-consensual and deeply harmful. I think that the key thing for me here is non-consensual. And that's how I feel. It's not just in Cambodia. That's everyone. We're all being subjected to this, to this great experiment without our consent. I have to have a phone more or less to like exist in this world and communicate with the people the way that I do. I just came out of a 10 day meditation retreat where I didn't have my phone for 10 days. And I spent a lot of time reflecting on like, wow, is there a conceivable way that I could design my life that I don't have a phone? But then I would arrive to Cambodia. I want to get in touch with the actors and their families and see them. And it's just like, no, it's got its hooks in us. And so I think that that's the thing about that's that's kind of the most villainous aspect of Dr. Vatanak Sovan. It's I, I think that he's doing good work. He's a genius. He's trying to do the right thing. But where he really makes his big mistake is that he doesn't care about consent. And in that way, he's kind of an, an avatar of this larger movement of technology creeping into our lives that is not giving us a choice on whether or not we, we want it to change our brains. Like we are just being subjected to it. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the state of technological advancement and the use of technology in Cambodia. Now, I know you can't speak on behalf of the Cambodian people, but I'm really interested in your interactions with, for example, the actors that you worked with on on set. How were they thinking about technological innovation? How were they thinking about science fiction? How were they you know, thinking about the way in which Cambodia is, as you put it before, a space of constant development? Well, it's a new kind of story for Cambodia. And, and so people were like very excited. They've seen sci-fi stuff coming from other places. But I think that people felt really proud to be the Cambodians. You know, we, we had our, our crew was 80, 85% Cambodian 
the actors, except for the, the two leads who speak English, the, 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 the two scientists were all Cambodian. And there was like a feeling of pride and excitement. And also, I think there's a kind of feeling of like, yeah, duh, of course, we should have a sci-fi story. Like, we're, you know, what, why, why not? I got to see in my students when I was teaching a lot of changes when people, you know, they started getting smartphones. And like in the West, you start to see them. It's this the same thing. I witnessed people getting sucked in, people glued to their phones. But I remember having these really gratifying moments of the very first day we were shooting the scenes in Lang Hang's home where his mom or his mom, his mom is putting the activation helmet on grandma so that she can have her neuron stimulated to help with her Alzheimer's. And we were shooting on location in in the village. And so I, I'm sitting behind my monitor and, and like the whole village has come out and there's standing 40 people behind me gathered around the monitor watching this and like trying to peer on what's going on. And just thinking about this scene of grandma's wearing this cap with all these like uh, electrodes and wires coming out of it. And there's something very extremely familiar about the scene that's happening of the family get preparing breakfast and getting ready for the day but with this element and i could see that the people in the village were like really interested and excited and that's really cool for me to participate in this conversation it's it's i think that part of the reason why i wanted to do this is out of a sense of like love and respect for cambodia it's like hell yeah they deserve a sci-fi have you shown the film in Cambodia? What kind of conversations have you had about the film with Cambodian audiences? So far, we've just done a screening for the cast and crew. But you know, when you're when you're making a film, you're shooting it out of order. You're missing all of the visual effects. We have 300 visual effects shots in this film. So, in a lot of ways, I think that the people working on it, while they knew the story, they didn't really know what it was going to be. And a lot of the sci-fi stuff is coming from adding in, you know, the digital skyline and the drones or in the, the augmented reality overlay turns on this kind of stuff. And I think that, yeah, as I was saying before, one of the, the main overwhelming reactions has been like excitement and pride. It's a new kind of story that the Cambodian audience is, is grappling with. I'm, I think the thing that I'm most excited for is when we do the release in Cambodia. Here, I just re returned to Cambodia after doing a bunch of festival travel to start having those conversations, figure out how, how we're going to do that. But the film was like, you know, it was born of a lot of conversations of people talking to my Cambodian friends, how they feel about the way that technology is coming into their lives. You know, also conversations I'd have like with my tuk-tuk driver who just moved from the countryside to Phnom Penh shortly after arriving, having a pretty impactful conversation with the guy who, you know, was telling me how he'd moved to the big city to make money for his family, but he really hated it. He wanted to be back in nature with his family. And that ran so counter to this narrative, I thought, of people wanting to like come towards the big shiny thing and and like dive into the future. And here was a, a kid who like knew where his priorities was and in a way that like resonated with some hipster California sensibility, but he was already jaded by the the bright lights of the of the city. What were some of the ethical questions that came up for you while writing a film about Cambodia, especially a film that looks at intergenerational memories transferring over in the context of Cambodia's violent past? The big question that I asked myself repeatedly was, should I tell this story at all? It's like a, it's like a white guy from America. I felt that too when I first moved to Cambodia to teach filmmaking. 
there were things about it that about that project that felt really valuable and to get to explore creativity with a bunch of kids we spent a year going through the process of filmmaking and, and empowering them to tell the kinds of stories that they wanted to tell that all seemed really valuable you know kids who hadn't received much or any arts education but at the same time i felt acutely aware of the fact that i was whether i wanted to be or not i was a sort of ambassador for american culture in their lives here i am like a, a single man in his late 20s traveling coming in with with my phone with with all of my gadgets and just realizing that i like i by my presence was representing some you know a very individualistic kind of life i mean that that would be somewhat unthinkable and i think that part of the process of deciding to go after i had the idea for the story deciding to go ahead and make the movie it came from having a lot of conversations with cambodian friends and also other filmmakers here trying to understand how outsiders have told stories here in the past in ways they may or may not have been successful or insensitive or you know trying to educate myself on that kind of stuff and also feeling like the story was was grounded in this desire to examine and critique the influence of the culture that I felt myself as a representative of, you know, and, and thinking about how Western culture is coming into Cambodia and influencing. And it, and it might not feel like that really narratively on the surface of the film. That's what it's about. But for me, that's like the beating heart of the film in a lot of ways. As regards to talking about intergenerational trauma and the violent past, I have to say, growing up, I the only thing I knew about Cambodia through college was that the Khmer Rouge was the communist party in power in the late 70s and there was a genocide. It was only when I traveled to Cambodia that I learned that America dropped more bombs on Cambodia than any other countries in the world have ever had bombs dropped on them except for Vietnam and Laos. This was all around the Vietnam War. And America installed a puppet autocrat in the government who was um, supportive to them and, and then dropped a lot of bombs in, on Cambodia in the lead up to what became the Pol Pot time. And so I think that there's a pretty strong case to be made that there's a there's like a really direct line between American influence and then this horrific history. And so it felt really important for me too. it was uh, learning that was was really eye opening for me, it changed the way that I thought about the world, definitely pulled some wool off my eyes. And and so I really wanted, in, in talking about the future and the ways of outside influence changing a place, I also wanted to be able to point to, to ways this has happened in the past and to look at this as a recurring pattern. Right now, China is exerting a huge influence in Cambodia. There's a lot of Chinese investment and Chinese culture is becoming kind of like the dominant outside force in a lot of ways. Um, and that kind of crops up in the movie in, in certain ways. But there's been... You know, Cambodia was a French colony for a very long time that also had a profound impact on on the culture. And so these were some things in, in, in looking to the past and talking about the past that I ultimately felt like there's a lot of stories around the Khmer Rouge and in the popular understanding of Cambodia. It's generally centered around the Khmer Rouge. And it felt like that wasn't something that I that I needed to or even really had the right to get into very explicitly. But what I did want to center in the story and have be a really pivotal scene was the American bombing and looking at how that's part of a lineage of these like 
technological forces of destruction or technological forces of change. I mean, in this case, quite literally destruction with the mines, as you were talking about, literally destruction, but change, how that's how that's part of a longer history. I wanted to ask a question about the nature of the ethics of the Karmalink technology itself, which is to say one thing that that technology proposes is that memories can be transferred across generations and that past generations seem to want to insist on oftentimes non-consensually passing those memories on, animating the minds of future generations with that past. Oftentimes in the film, that animation or that inhabitants seems to be portrayed as against the will of those future generations. I guess this question is really about the ethics of transmitting memory across generations. Maybe the technology of doing that in this specifically scientific technological way of transmitting memory is currently still beyond our capacity, but the technology really does, at least to me, seem to embody a reality of something that we do all the time. We're always in the process of transmitting memories across generations through rituals that transmit cultural memories, through sacred objects, such as the figurine in, in the film, that recall the memories of the past by embodying it materially, by songs and by prayers and by stories, and of course, by films. Many people would ascribe an ethic to allowing the past to live in the present as a kind of necessary ethic and maybe would even insist on passing down memories of the past to future generations. But in the film, I think that the, this passage actually becomes harmful, again, and non-consensual. The young character who's the latest link in Carmelink becomes literally incapacitated as his mind fills up with these memories from the past. And at the end, another heroic character literally cuts the cord, severs the cord, linking this character to his past lives, and thus saves this character's life. Do we have reasons to be cautious about what of the past we pass on to future generations? Is there a way that the film maybe says, maybe passing on memories, maybe allowing the past to live on infinitely might not be such a great thing for the present? What I was trying to explore in the film was I think that there's different ways that memories get passed on on display or different ways that we connect to our to memory in display in the film. And the problematic one that forms the crux of the film is this non-consensual, technologically enhanced shortcut that actually alienates the, the lead character from his own memories. He gets displaced in the context of his own mind. And that's the issue is this display, this non-consensual displacement. And for me, I, you know, it's like that aspect of it. It's about memory. It, it is about memory. It's about culture. It's about the way that Cambodian culture is changing in the process of development as all of these, as like Western technology, but also Western culture becomes much more pervasive. I, I think that the film, you know, however you want to read it is fine. But for me, it's, it's like rooting for this main character to to be authentically connected to what are his own memories, his own sense of self and, you know, in belonging with, with his community rather than to have the visions of someone else foisted upon him. And, and that's something that I think, you know, in design and when we're thinking about new technologies that, that feels like a really key ingredient that has often been missing is really understanding the, the needs of the populations 
of users and how how can it best serve these different populations and understanding that different populations have their own cultures have different needs and you know the more that these like single technologies become globalized and all pervasive it, it, it has this like homogenizing effect and we start to lose you know the, the fine details that make up the the great global tapestry of different cultures and and so for me the film i mean i i do think that yes there's definitely stuff in the past that needs to be let go of and we talked to you know a fair amount about this idea of trauma and like how can you process that in a healthy way so that you can move forward and that you're not mired in that but i think that there's certainly a really important place of being able to feel culturally at home and connected to your past and your tradition and that like i think memory is a really important tool in that process one of the i think important things to note about the philosophical concept of karma is that it is not just located in what we've been talking about for the most part which is in memory and in the past but also in the idea that the future is waiting to be born in any past moment right that the, that the future is already anticipated or is already there so the question that i want to ask is how do we think about the future as alive in the past or in the present waiting to be born especially in the context of Cambodia. That's a really like good, clear perspective on it that we hold the seeds right now of the of the trees of the future. We're planting seeds all the time. There's, you know, there, there's the, in the film, I think a lot about it and the, the, the tree motif and the uprooting trees and the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha gained enlightenment. I, I think that, you know, in this moment of great change and upheaval in Cambodia, there's a lot of potential paths open and it's sort of like the karma that we enact as a society in Cambodia and more globally right now the actions that we take right now and the places that we come from are going to they will bear fruit of one kind or another in the future you know whether it's going to be bitter fruit or like a luscious dragon fruit that I ate this morning is it's dependent on the seeds that we're planting Final question. We've talked a lot about science fiction dystopias in the last hour or so. Can science fiction help us imagine a better present or a better future? And if so, how? Yeah, I mean, I think that the hope is that dystopias can like, you know, as cautionary tales can can alert us to some of our lesser impulses or, or figure out how to how to think more deeply about things that we, we maybe aren't thinking about so that we can make a better future. That said, man, I've been thinking about utopia a lot. And thinking about how we're really awash in dystopian visions for the future, and we really need more positive visions. I think I'm thinking a lot about climate change these days and how we could really use more stories of how we might come together as a society to do a better job of taking care of our planet. The ideas that I'm ideating now for future projects are are taking place in, in futures that are somehow more utopian. One of my favorite sci-fi authors, Kim Stanley Robinson talks about how utopia is a process you know it's not it's not like an end goal that you reach but it's something that continually evolves and he wrote my favorite book sort of related to this this area that i'm talking about right now which is called ministry for the future which is like a really grounded look in in like the global society doing better with climate change over the next 30 years how we might evolve from where we are now to a place that that looks much better um and it's a really fraught path and i think it's it's done realistically but i think that that kind of story can be really inspiring you know and also when you make a move i was working on this movie for five years that's a long time to live in the world of a story and i'm like 
if I'm going to tell another story, it's going to take a long time. Why not? Why not tell a story that's really like hopeful and fun to live in? And so I think that there certainly is a function for dystopias, but I think that we're definitely at a, at a moment in time right now where we could use a lot more utopian fiction. And I hope to participate in, in creating some of those worlds. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. That was a lot of fun.